If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers. Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark chapter 1, and I'll be reading the verses 9 through 15. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts and the animals and the angels waited on him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Here ends the reading inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. It has to be the first Sunday of Lent because this is how Lent always begins. The baptism of Jesus by John. All the Gospels start this way, so it must have been very important. Perhaps because John was the Billy Graham of his day. Out in the desert, preaching hellfire and brimstone, drawing huge crowds, when suddenly one of his disciples, I believe, a local Nazarene, one Jesus of Nazareth, got in line with all the other sinners. Now who knows why he got in that line? Fred Craddock once preached on this text in this pulpit and asked this question, why did he get in that line? I don't know why he did that, Fred said, and all of a sudden paused to compose himself because he couldn't speak because he was holding back tears. I'd never seen Fred Craddock cry. He knew this was one of the most fateful decisions Jesus ever made. I don't know why he got in that line, Fred said, but he did, and that changed everything. Now we know this ourselves because we can all remember getting in one kind of line or another, and it changed everything. Maybe it was the line that ended up in the front of the church where you would exchange vows to get married. That changed a few things. Maybe it was a recruitment line to sign up to be a soldier. Maybe it was a line at the registrar's office to sign up for the university. Maybe it was a line to stand before a judge who would render a verdict, guilty, 
innocent. You get custody. No, you get custody. And everything changed. Mark tells the story so fast and with so few details that we have to stop and catch our breath. Jesus is baptized, pronounced beloved, driven into the wilderness to be tempted, and starts preaching in Galilee all in six short verses. Mark doesn't mess around. His favorite word is immediately. In fact, in seminary, for the first time, I heard Mark's gospel referred to as a passion narrative with a long introduction. Mark tells the Jesus story to convince Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, of course, so he uses archetypal Jewish themes. Jesus represents the new exodus. The baptism of Jesus in the Jordan is like Israel's baptism in the Red Sea. Only for Jesus, it's the sky that parts so that all might be delivered. Then he's driven into the wilderness for 40 days to mirror the 40 years that Israel spent wandering in the desert. These are not hard numbers, of course, they're metaphors. And the good news that Jesus begins to preach after he's baptized and tempted is the new good news, entry into a new promised land. So this is how the Bible works. Layer upon layer are added as the story unfolds but also so that the reader will attach new significance to what is already considered significant. That's how we still tell stories. We don't make it up from scratch. We put a new costume on an old story. Once upon a time, there was a king who had everything but happiness. He was rich, but he was lonely. Now, that story will only make sense if the listener knows what once upon a time means what a king is, what power is, what wealth is, and why so often they have nothing to do with happiness. It is also for this very reason that so many biblical narratives fall awkwardly against the modern ear. Take these temptations in the desert. Um, we are not a fasting culture. And we do not regularly deprive ourselves of things in order to see and feel more clearly, although the practice of fasting is coming back. H have you ever fasted? It, it does bring clarity. It does sharpen the mind. It strips away less essential distractions as the body tries to adjust to a new reality because food and drink can dull the mind. The absence of the same sharpens the mind. If you don't believe it, try it. And that's why Matthew and Luke both add to Mark's account and describe these temptations in detail. The first driven by hunger, of course, the most primal human need. We should not live to eat, of course. That would be gluttony, but we must eat to live. So the tempter moves into that hunger with an offer. Turn these stones into bread. In other words, end your own hunger along with the hunger of everyone else in the world. Now what could be bad about that? And yet Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone. The second temptation is also about the most basic of human needs to be safe and secure. Think for a moment about what parents are feeling all over this country right now about just sending their kids off to school. My daughter, Chelsea, said to me, Dad, how do I send my girls off to school someday? 
in a world like this. So Satan offers Jesus protection, a kind of cosmic insurance. He's taken to Jerusalem, placed on the highest spot on the temple where the devil dares him to jump off to prove that he is indeed the son of God. After all, it's written, the angels will protect you. And besides this, this will amaze the crowds and and set them buzzing. I mean, just imagine the effect this stunt would have on those leaving the temple after a long, boring sermon by the rabbi. And Jesus could yell, hey, people, Jesus here. No, no, up here. I'll show you God's favor. Mothers, it's okay to let your children watch. I'm Jesus, the magic temple jumper. Someone could start charging admission for a regular show. But Jesus responds, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Finally, this devil inside his own head takes him up to a high spot where he can look out over all the kingdoms of the world and the voice says, I'll give it all to you, everything, if you'll just worship me. I call this the Donald Trump temptation. You can have it all, all of it, if you will just give me your soul. As one master of the universe to another, it's mine to give. Porn stars, playboy models, anything you can grab. And don't worry, evangelicals will still vote for you. Your friends will be oligarchs, and the people who work for you will beat their wives, and everyone will lie if it's good for business. And Jesus said, no, no, I will only serve God. I will not serve myself. You know, once upon a time, I thought temptations occurred at places where people were weak. You know, someone has a weakness for chocolate or for whiskey or for redheads. But now I realize that real temptations occur at those places where people are strong, not where they're weak. Capacity, not incapacity, is what drives temptation which is why power corrupts and ultimate power corrupts ultimately. It is the articulate man or woman who has the power to seduce. It is the rich man or woman who has the power to buy off other people. It is the strong who can crush the weak and claim this is God's reward for being strong. In fact, I noticed something in Mark's brief version of this story that I'd never noticed before. The wild animals... They're called the wild beasts in the King James and in our New Revised Standard Version, but in some translations, they are wild animals. I like that better. I'd never really thought about the wild animals before. And Matthew and Luke refer to the angels waiting on Jesus and the devil testing him, but only in Mark is there mention of wild animals. Now, to be clear, when the text says the angels were waiting on him, in the Greek, this really means the angels were serving him food. But about the wild animals, well, we are not certain what they are doing. So it's difficult to know whether Mark's referring to animals before the fall of Adam, when they were no threat to humans, or to the present state, after the fall, in which wild animals were a danger, are a danger, snakes, bears, wolves, all around you in the darkness when you're alone in the wilderness. In other words, wild animals after the fall 
after we all got kicked out of the garden. I think it's more likely that Mark is using the symbols of wild animals and angels here to represent two forces battling within him. But I hope you will not just think of the proverbial angel on the one shoulder whispering in one ear, the devil on the other shoulder whispering in the other ear back and forth, have the chocolate cake, don't have the chocolate cake. I mean, we trivialize temptation when we talk this way or when we assume that because, well, this is Jesus, after all, he can't really be tempted because he's perfect. I've heard those sermons that, that Jesus only seemed to be tempted in order to set an example, really. Because anyone who pretends in order to set an example is not setting a very good example. We're not tempted to do what we cannot do, but what we can do. Or as the great preacher George Buttrick put it, you do not have a sea storm in a roadside puddle. Which got me to thinking that as we begin Lent, we should be on guard against temptation as caricature. Hi, I'm Satan, I'm here to tempt you. Most temptations are not only more subtle than this, but they come wrapped in noble-sounding rationales. The tempter often looks and sounds like a friend or a relative or is a friend or a relative. That's why Jesus has to say to Peter once, get behind me, Satan. You remember that? And if you remember the context in which Jesus says that to his right-hand man, it's when Peter is offering Jesus the chance to rise, to succeed, to become somebody because Jesus knows what will really happen as a part of the mysterious plan of God. He's not gonna get elected to anything and there will be no Jesus administration. These wild animals are stealthy. They're, they're not Hollywood stunts. The, the tempter does not say, do you wish to be like the devil? Well, of course not. No, he says, do you wish to be like God? Or if you are really the son of God, prove it. Again, as Dr. Craddock taught us once, there is nothing here of the debauchery so often associated with temptation. No self-respecting Satan would approach a person with offers of personal, social, and professional ruin. That is in the small print at the bottom of the temptation. So as we begin the season of Lent, I want to ask you to consider those temptations which arise for you, not at the places where you're weak, but at the places where you are strong. Those are your wild animals. They are not staring at you through a confectionery counter, forcing you to ask great existential questions like, do I have the dessert mm, or do I not have the dessert? The wild animals are stalking you with much bigger questions, the answers to which have much bigger consequences. A woman I know said she plans to give up for Lent this year. Sarcasm. I said, well, okay, sarcasm, that's good, but could, could you maybe just aim a little higher? <laughs> maybe face some demons. I mean, you have demons, right? We all do. Those are your wild animals. And if you don't think you have any demons, then you should probably spend some time in the desert or with a good therapist. They are prowling around us all the time. 
There are even wild animals who stalk the clergy, don't you know? Ministers of the gospel may have hitched their wagon to a star, but they're still dragging their humanity around with them. Here's one of the wild animals that stalk the clergy. I'm not going to tell you all of them, though you're listening very hard right now. <laughs> Here's one of them. It's the one that the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard warned preachers about, that we will confuse concept with capacity. Meaning this, hey, I preached a really good sermon on love. Everybody asked me for a copy. Therefore, I must be a loving person. A church member asked me once, how do I become a gracious person? Well, I recommended a good book on grace to her. Well, that's all right, not a bad place to begin, but in the end, the only way to become a gracious person is to act graciously. So let's not live inside our heads, because what I think is that the over-intellectualization of religion is a wild animal that stalks the mainline church, circling us day and night. And meanwhile, confession, Lori and I secretly fear that you will all figure out one of these days that we have no idea what we are doing. <laughs> we secretly fear, in fact, that we cannot do anything that will change anything, and this is not just true for us, but for every preacher. There is this dark fantasy that stalks us. We will get up some Sunday morning with nothing to say. I was tempted this morning. Our beloved Sister Barbara is gone. No one can take her place. Another school shooting, another massacre with the gun the devil himself has designed, a gun no sane or civil society should ever sell to anyone. Amen. And so I'm tempted, tempted to just say, I've got nothing to say. Sorry, I know you pay me to say something, but I've got nothing. There are no words. I need to be alone. Let's just all go home and weep for Rachel's children who are no more, and for this country, wandering in search of its own soul, the one we sold to the National Rifle Association. That shooting happened on Ash Wednesday, which also happened to coincide with Valentine's Day. Interesting. Valentine's Day, whose symbol of love is a bediapered infant and blindfolded to boot. <laughs> thank you, thank you for that. It's, it is kind of humorous. Love is blind, that's what they say. Love is blind. Well, if that's true, then hey, why is everybody at the gym trying so hard to get a six-pack? These wild animals, they're prowling around us all the time. They whisper, you are not enough. You are not enough. And in case you missed it, you are not enough. So if Eros is the god of Valentine's Day, then what's the god of Ash Wednesday? To know that you are mortal? Can that be a gift? If you think not, then just consider the damage done by those who think they are immortal. Recently, a young minister stood on a New York City street corner on Ash Wednesday with a bowl of oil and ashes and offered to any passerby a chance to be marked, saying those strange countercultural words, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, you are a beloved child of God. And people started lining up for it. 
New York City. One bus driver, seeing this, pulled the bus over to the curb. This was not his regular stop. Called the preacher over onto the bus so that he could mark his forehead. He, the bus driver, wanted that reminder of his own mortality more than he wanted to be on time. So let me ask you about your wild animals. Tell me about them. What you see when, when you spend some time in the desert thinking about something other than what shall I eat, what shall I drink, and where shall I go tonight? I know about your good qualities because you've posted them all over social media. <laughs> that was some vacation you took. Wow, what a party and your promotion. And you always look good. And your wise words about the great causes of the day and your contempt for politicians. I know all about that. But what, what I want to know is, what do you see when you hear a sound behind you in the quiet of the night when you're all alone and you turn around and there it is, your wild animal. That which stalks you, not because you're weak, but because you are strong. Is it that you don't know what it means to have enough and because you can make more, you should make more, even at the expense of everyone around you? Is it that you think your reputation is more important than your soul? Because it's nice to be liked and admired, but I'm telling you, if you have no enemies at all, it is a sure sign that you are doing absolutely nothing that matters, not to mention that you're lying a lot. Or is the beast in your life a deep emptiness that you will fill with things that never satisfy? Are you treating symptoms while you ignore the disease? Will you ask for another pill or will you look the wild animal in the eye and say, get behind me? This is how Lent begins. Ours is not a prosperity gospel or the power of positive thinking movement. We start things off with the greatest temptation of all to believe that there are no shortcuts to the authentic life or that you will live forever or that you can avoid wild animals just by living in the right neighborhood. So my question is, not Fred's question, why did he get in that line? Mine is, will, will, will you take this journey with us? Will you come along? I mean, truth in advertising, we're not going to a party. We're gonna go out past the city lights to a place where things go bump in the night. But rumor has it that the wild animals are not alone either. Apparently there are angels out there too. Angels, and they have food. So who's in? You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. 
Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.